Ecclesiastes chapter 8, beginning in verse 8. There is no man that hath power over the Spirit to retain the Spirit, neither hath he power in the day of death. There is no discharge in that war, neither shall wickedness deliver those that are given to it. All this have I seen and applied my heart unto every work that is done under the sun. There is a time wherein one man ruleth over another to his own hurt. And so I saw the wicked buried who had come and gone from the place of the holy, and they were forgotten in the city where they had so done. This is also vanity. Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Though a sinner do evil an hundred times, and his days be prolonged, yet surely I know that it shall be well with them that fear God, which fear before him. But it shall not be well with the wicked, neither shall he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he feareth not before God. There is a vanity which is done upon the earth, that there be just men unto whom it happeneth according to the work of the wicked. Again, there be wicked men to whom it happeneth according to the work of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. Then I committed mirth, because a man hath no better thing under the sun than to eat and to drink and to be merry, for that shall abide with him of his labor the days of his life which God giveth him under the sun." When I applied mine heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done upon the earth, for also there is that neither day nor night seeth sleep with his eyes, then I beheld all the work of God that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun, because though a man labor to seek it out, yet he shall not find it. Yea, further, though a wise man think to know it, yet he shall not be able to find it. I said we're going to again talk about living in this absurd world. We're calling it life under the sun. And that's what Solomon is dealing with. There are things that just happen. And in this message there's about five different scenarios or five different events that he talks about that I want to deal with. And so we've got to go through it rather quickly this morning. But if you'll notice the word vanity is used three times. In these verses, verses 8 through 17. Now the Hebrew word for vanity means vapor. And a vapor is something that just cannot be grasped and held on to, right? And so as we look at life today, as we see what is happening in our world, as we see what is happening in our nation, as we see some things happen in our own lives, and I think the things that Solomon deals with in these verses are things that could happen to us and that we could see on a daily basis, but as we see these things occur, you know, sometimes it's just hard to mentally grasp what's going on in our world and in our nation today. Life is full of mysteries. And the biggest mystery of life, I think, is, and if you've raised teenagers especially, you've heard this, why does life seem so unfair? You know, when our children were growing up, they'd say something like, that's not fair. And I'd say, well, life's not fair. Learn to live with it. And if we go through life expecting life to always be fair, we're going to live confused lives. And I think a lot of people are living confused lives today. Because it seems like many times the ungodly are the ones that are exalted. And it is the godly, it is the righteous who are ridiculed. And again, we must remember that we live in an unsaved world, folks. Things are upside down in this world. 
and they'll never be made right side up until the Lord Jesus Christ sits on the throne. Isaiah chapter 55, God said, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Psalm 73, the psalmist said, my steps had almost slipped, my feet had almost gone. Why? Because he looked at the world and he expected the world, I guess, to be fair. And he said, it's the ungodly who seem to prosper and it's the godly who seem to have problems. He said, until I went into the sanctuary of God and I understood their end. Recall in verse one of this eighth chapter, remember what the preacher said, who is as the wise man and who knoweth the interpretation of a thing. And so as we look at this upside down world, and if we'll look at it with godly wisdom, we'll get an understanding of what Solomon mentions here in verse 14, why there be just men unto whom it happeneth according to the work of the wicked, and there be wicked men unto whom it happeneth according to the work of the righteous. And we'll see that if we will operate with godly wisdom, if we'll approach these things and understand these things with godly wisdom, we're going to understand that there's just some things that using human sense, we can't make sense of. But using godly wisdom, we can understand. And the first thing he mentions is this, the inability of man. The inability of man. And he makes two very plain statements right here in verse 8. Mankind, this is verse 7, but mankind knows neither what will be nor when it will be. We don't know what's going to happen and we don't know when it's going to happen. Who knows what tomorrow will bring? We don't even know what this afternoon will bring. And so we live just from moment to moment. Remember David said at one point there is but a step between me and death. And so he lived, understood that he had to live moment by moment. Mankind has no control over death of any kind. We may think we do. We have doctors and we have medicines, but in reality, we don't control life and we don't control death. And in fact, what it says in verse 8 is that mankind over the spirit or over his spirit, he has no power to retain that spirit and he does not have power in the day of death. We may get terribly, terribly ill and recover from it, but one day God's going to call that spirit home. And we don't have any power over it when God says it's time to come on home. James chapter 4 verse 14, James says, you don't know what's going to be on the morrow. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. He says, what is your life? It is a vapor that appears for just a little while and then vanishes away. Proverbs chapter 27 verse 1, boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. And so we don't know what. We don't know when, and most of the time we don't know who, and what we do many times, and this is what Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 6, verse 34, about not taking thought or being filled with anxiety over tomorrow. He says, for tomorrow's going to take thought or have enough problems of its own. We cheat ourselves of today worrying about tomorrow, and today they tell us that 90% of the things that we worry about never happen. Isn't that something? So, to give the worrier something to worry about, all right? Just to give the worrier something else to worry about, verse 8 reminds me, reminds us that when the day of death comes, we can't do anything about it. 
We have absolutely no control. I said some may get close to death and revive. Well, you know what? That day of departing has not come. Dr. Jerry Vines, who was once president of the Southern Baptist Convention, told a story. He was on an airplane going somewhere, and they hit some terrible turbulence, and the plane was really shaking and bouncing up and down, and he said he thought they were going to crash, and he said, I began to pray. He said, I gave up my bubble gum and everything else, and I was going to get right with the Lord, and he said, then we came out of it, and it was just smooth flying, and he said, I prayed, and he said, Lord, I'm, I'm a little disappointed. He said, Lord, you promised me that in the day of death you'd give me dying grace. And here I was all upset and everything. He said, the Lord spoke to my heart and said, well, son, you weren't dying just now. <laughs> we don't know when that day is going to come. In the book of Isaiah chapter 38, remember King Hezekiah? Chapter 38, verse 1, the scripture says, Hezekiah was sick unto death. And God said to Hezekiah, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. How would you like for God to tell you, you're fixing to die, you better get your house in order. And God told Hezekiah that. What did Hezekiah do? Verse 5 says, Hezekiah prayed. He turned his head to the wall. He wept tears, and he prayed to God, and he asked for an extension on his life. And verse 5, God says to Isaiah, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus saith the Lord, the God of David thy father, I have heard thy prayer, and I have seen thy tears. Behold, I will add unto thy days 15 years. And Hezekiah got an extension of life. But you know, the day came that Hezekiah died. He couldn't retain his spirit, and it was up to God to give him those extra days. If you've read the bulletin article today, I posted it on my personal Facebook a few days ago. And I told Sister Vicki, go ahead and use that. I don't think many people saw it. And it's entitled this, you may reject Jesus, but you will not reject death. And this is especially for anybody who's watching by way of live stream or hears on the podcast that does not know Jesus Christ as Savior. You know, you try to witness to somebody and they say, oh, I don't want to hear about Jesus. I don't want to accept Jesus. And they'll reject Jesus. But when that day of death comes and knocks on your door, you will not say, go away, death. I don't want anything to do with you today. Go away, leave me alone. And come back some other. No, when the day of death comes, when God says it's time to go, you will go. And if you're lost, you'll stand before the great white throne judgment of God. And if you're saved, you'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So there's the inability of man. Man can't even keep himself alive. But then there's what I call the inequities of life in verses 9 and 10. And Solomon says a couple of things, names a couple of things that he had seen, which he had thought about deeply and which he had tried to understand. Look, he said, I applied my heart. That means he gave great thought to it. He's trying to understand this through human wisdom. Remember, Solomon's the child of God, but he's trying to understand some things through human wisdom, and he talks about what I call the power to dominate. He said, I've seen situations where one person has power over another person to that individual's hurt, to cause problems for that individual. And speaking primarily of people who may be in positions of authority. Have you ever noticed how sometimes people who get in positions of authority like to use their authority to dominate other people? It happens. He's talking especially about kings and rulers. And he says, why does God allow that? Why does God allow a person to get in a position if they're going to use that position to dominate other people? 
Well, you go back to verse 6. And he just says this, to every purpose there is time and judgment. Therefore, the misery of man is great upon him. A part of man's misery upon this earth is the oppressive domination of other people over mankind. And so God allows, it is a part of our living upon this earth. It seems that our people in this world that just get a certain enjoyment, have you ever noticed this? That just get a certain enjoyment out of feeling and acting superior to other people to oppress those other people. Sometimes these folks get into churches. Third John, verse 9. John's writing to a church. And John says to this church in 3 John 9, I wrote unto the church, but there was a man in that church named Diotrephes. He said, I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Loveth to have the preeminence talks about being fond of being first. It talks about being ambitious of distinction, having a place of power. And here was a man in this church that when John wrote to the church, and in fact, he says he doesn't even receive the brethren. Other brothers and sisters in Christ would come to that church. Diotrephes, because he wanted to have the preeminence and because he wanted to dominate, would not even receive brothers and sisters in Christ. Now that's a shame for that to happen in one of the Lord's churches. And what we need to remember is the instruction that Paul gave that church at Philippi, which we're going to get to cover in a couple of weeks on Wednesday nights. But in Philippians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, he said this, Fulfill ye my joy, and be ye like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem other better than themselves. You know what he's saying? He's saying God's people... Especially God's people in the Lord's churches ought to be marked by one characteristic. You know what that is? Humility. Esteem others better than ourselves. Be concerned about our brothers and sisters in Christ more than saying, I want to have my way like Diotrephes said. I only want certain people here that will elevate me like Diotrephes did. But to deal with one another in lowliness of mind. And so there is the power to dominate and there are people like that in the world. But then he talks about what I call the praise of the disreputable. And folks, we see this many times every day in our lives. And here's what the idea is. And this is in verse 10. It seems that Solomon had seen wicked people buried. And not only were they buried, they were buried with honor. Have you ever noticed that no matter how wickedly a life someone has lived, when it comes to the time of their funeral service, the preacher will always say good things about them? But the picture here is that had this memorial service for this wicked person, and there's a whole procession of priests and of Levites accompanying the corpse of the deceased, and that they're saying good things about this individual. It's religious pretense is what it is. These people were wicked. In fact, he says they had come and gone from the place of the holy, probably referring to the temple. They were in church every time the church met. Outside the church, they lived wicked lives. They lived sinful lives. But they're going to show up at church, and they're going to be godly at church. And so when they died, everybody wants to say good things about them. 
Oh, we'll forget their wicked deeds. We'll forget how they lived. They were praised in the very city, he says, where they had committed their wicked deeds. And we just want to sort of go along with that idea that their evil is going to be forgotten and we're going to praise them in their infamy. I think we see that many times. And yes, I'm going to wax political for a moment. I think we see that many times in the political world. Some political figure dies and they promoted things and desired things that were ungodly and foreign to the word of God. But when they pass away, oh, they're praised for being great leaders and so forth. Solomon's talking about that kind of individual. Someone who's lived a morally bankrupt life. And then it comes to their memorial service. And it's held at the church house. And they're lamented and they're praised as being a great person. In our world today, we see it. I heard a story about three brothers. And they were wicked men. They were evil men. They were drunks. They ran around on their spouses. They were womanizers. They were just really some pretty vile people. And the worst of the three brothers died. And the two brothers came to the preacher and said, we want you to preach the funeral. And pastor, here's what we want you to do. When you preach the funeral, we want you to say our brother was a saint. And the preacher said, I don't think I can do that. And so the brother said, look, preacher, we'll pay you $1,000 to preach the funeral if you'll say our brother was a saint. And you know how preachers do. He said, let me pray about it. So the day of the funeral came. The preacher's ready to preach the funeral service. The other two brothers are there and the preacher gets up in the pulpit and he says, this man was immoral. He drank heavily. When he was drunk, he beat his wife. He verbally abused his children. He ran around on his wife. Even though he was married, he caroused. He spent his money at bars and at nightclubs and he even used drugs. But I tell you what, compared to his other two brothers, this man was a saint. <laughs> That's what we do a lot of times, though. We'll watch people and observe their lives and know what kind of lives they live, and yet when they're gone, we want to praise them. And at the same time, those who preach the truth, those who have the courage to stand against error, those who have the desire to stand for the truth are many times maligned and laughed at. And Solomon says all of this is just vanity. And what he's saying here is, He's talking about the way of the world to do that sort of thing. He's saying this is just so much smoke. This is just so much vapor. Listen, it doesn't matter how many good things somebody says about you at your funeral. You realize that? It really doesn't matter how many good things somebody says about you at your funeral. If a person does not know Jesus Christ as Savior, once they close their eyes in death, they're going to open them in hell. And by the way, it doesn't matter how many good things somebody says about a child of God at his funeral. If he didn't serve God during his life, he was an unfaithful or she was an unfaithful child of God. Amen. We think all of those flowers at the end of the individual's life is going to do something for them in eternity. It's not. Amen. By the way, if you want to give somebody flowers, give them to them while they're alive. Amen. They can enjoy them. And we are preaching our funerals right now every day that we live. Then there's what I call the impudence of the wicked. What is impudence? Well, it's just their sinfulness and so forth. But he says in verse 11, something I think we know well, we need to know well, because sentence 
against an evil work is not executed speedily. Therefore, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Why are people so willing to commit crime? Why are people so willing to commit sin? And he says just this, because sentence isn't carried out speedily. That word speedily talks about in a hurry. It talks about promptly, discipline, deterrence. And the idea is the heart of men, the, the seed and the center of men, where they make decisions to do things because they see others sin, they see others commit crimes and seem to get away with it, then their hearts are encouraged to do the same thing. Listen, I believe if the killer, the kidnapper, the drug pusher, any other criminal, if they could be caught, tried, convicted, and sentenced quickly instead of waiting one, two, three, four years, there might be some folks whose ears would perk up and say, maybe I better not do that because I'll be right where they are. Amen. You say, you tell them, preacher, right? All right, I'm going to. Get ready. If church discipline were practiced as the Lord intended, you say, stop right there, preacher, right? You're going to meddling now, haven't I? If church discipline were practiced as the Lord intended, as he gave it to us, we might see more people being faithful to God through his churches and living the separated lives that God desires. Amen. I appreciate the amen, but that sure was weak. Listen, folks. Three-fourths of our members never show up. Probably over half of them, I don't even know who they are. And come September, I've been with you nine years. And some of our folks, and I started to pick on Sister Lola with this. I won't, but I will. <laughs> some of our oldest members, I mean some of our members who have been here the longest, okay? Some of our folks who have been here the longest don't even know who some of these people are. Amen. We're going to carry them on the church roll, though, aren't we? <laughs> right? You know, if we would do what God wants us to do, if we would do things as God tells us to do, I believe we'd see the Lord blessing his churches in a greater way. Amen. You know, if you had little children, newborns, you sure wouldn't send them to a babysitter that was going to abuse them, would you? Somebody that had a reputation for not caring for them, not encouraging them, not feeding them, things like that. Well, why in the world would God want to give his spiritual babies to a church that's not going to care for them Amen. and teach them. I tell you what, if we do what God wants to do, we'd have a stronger witness and a stronger testimony in this community. Amen. Every church, every one of the Lord's churches would. If we would just do what God tells us to do. Now here's what it would do. It might cause some who are not serious about serving God not to join the church. Right? May I say something and you're welcome to disagree with me if you want to, but I think it's biblically based. Folks, we don't need more numbers for the sake of numbers. Amen. We need more people who love the Lord, want to serve the Lord, want to be here worshiping God together with us. That's what we need. And not just have numbers for the sake of I would love to see this sanctuary full of people. But I'd love to see it full of people who love God, who are serving God, who are faithful to God, who are going to go out and bring others in. We don't need numbers for the sake of numbers. Remember Acts chapter 5 and verse 11? 
If you haven't, if you don't, just you can turn there or you can listen to me. Ananias and Sapphira had just dropped dead in the church house. They had just lied or tried to lie to God. They had lied to the church. They had lied to the Holy Spirit. They had lied to Peter. And God took their lives. And the scripture says, and great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things. Now listen. If we started out a worship service with about two or three unfaithful people just keeling over in the pews, I think some people would sit up and pay attention to the message, don't you? Because sentence on an evil work is not executed speedily, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. When discipline is delayed or denied, some will get the idea that I'll never be punished for this and so I'll just go on and live like I want to live. Here's the difference between the two in verses 12 and 13. Solomon declares his inward conviction that godliness will be vindicated. And it will be. First he says a sinner may do evil a hundred times and his days be prolonged. He's talking about somebody that just sins constantly, continually. And he's not punished. The hundred times here is just sort of an indefinite number. And his days be prolonged. Live to an old age. Do you know any... Sinners, I mean some vile people who made it obvious that they don't care about God and the things of God who just seem to live forever and ever and ever. You know, when I read that, I thought about the actor George Burns. He seemed to live forever. But in two movies, I think he blasphemed God. And the movies, I think the first one was named Oh God and the second one was named, I believe, Oh God too. And he played the part of God. And he just seemed to live. And I would think sometimes, Lord, why don't you take care of this man? Well, God did. You know, His day came that he could not retain the spirit. But it seems sometimes like wicked people live on and on and on. And God's faithful servants die at a young age. And it's hard to make sense of, isn't it? We question it sometimes. I tell you what. When it was discovered that my mother had cancer, I could think of a whole lot of people that needed it more than she did. You ever done that? Well, why, Lord? That's what Solomon is talking about here. But he's confident that in spite of all appearances, the wicked living long lives, the righteous not living long lives, he says it's going to be well with the righteous in the long run. It's going to be good for God's people in the long run. Somebody used the term adjustment of anomalies. When the adjustment of anomalies takes place, the righteous will be compensated for the trouble that they endured, folks. We just continue to serve God. 2 Corinthians 5.10, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to receive for things done in the body, whether they be good or bad. We're going to give answer for our lives one of these days as children of God. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4, the Apostle John talks about what's going to happen to those of us who know Christ as Savior. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4 says this, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Verse 6, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Folks, it's going to be good for us. For those of us who know Christ as Savior, 
and then over in the book of Romans. Some of my favorite verses to think about in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 17. Verse 16 says that the Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Verse 17, if children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And if so be that we suffer with him that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. We may go through some suffering in this life. Oh, but what God has for us the things that we go through can't even compare to the glory that God has for the child of God. But then he says those who reject Christ and live on in their sin will have the torments of hell to look forward to. Verse 13 says it shall not be well with the wicked. You read the 20th chapter of Revelation verses 11 through 15. Everybody who is not, first of all, everybody who's not saved is going to stand before that great white throne judgment of God. And I think Matthew chapter 7, the end of that chapter is a preview of what's going to happen at the great white throne of God. Lord, didn't we preach in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many wonderful works in your name? Lord, we were church members. I was a preacher. I was a musician. I, was, I did this and I attended every Sunday and I did that. And Jesus said, I'll say unto them, what? Depart from me, ye that work in it. I never knew you. And he said, works, in effect says works in order to attain salvation is nothing in the world but sin. Remember the rich man in the book of Luke? The day he closed, the moment he closed his eyes in death, he opened them in torments. He said, I'm tormented in these flames. The scripture says he opened his eyes in torments. Mark describes a place as where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And then he says, neither shall he prolong his days. Verse 12 is no guarantee to the lost person that they're going to live a long time. It says God may allow them to live a long time, but it's no guarantee. And verse 13 reveals that some who reject Christ may live a long time, but the opposite may occur also. Have you ever run into people, you try to witness to them, they think, well, I'm young, I've got a lot of time. And shortly after that, they have a tragic accident and they're killed. Or they're left in such a mental state that now they no longer have the ability even to recognize their sin and to accept Jesus Christ as Savior. God may delay judgment, but judgment may come quickly. Remember James 4, 14. You know what? your life is just a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. And he tells us why it's not going to be well with the wicked. It says, because he feareth not before God. There's no fear. There's no reverence. There's no respect of God in their hearts. That moves us to verses 14 and 15, what I call the iniquity of this world. Here's the question that has perplexed men for thousands of years. And this is it. How do you reconcile the holiness and the goodness of God with the prosperity of the wicked and the troubles of the righteous? Remember, I said the psalmist in Psalm 73 looked at things and he said, man, I became envious of the ungodly. And I almost quit serving God because how do you reconcile the holiness and goodness of God with the prosperity of the wicked and the troubles of the righteous? Good people are treated like they're wicked. Wicked people are treated like they are good, like they're righteous. We see wicked people, evil people, sinful people living in ease and living in carelessness and fearlessness and, and almost secure. 
And we see some of God's people troubled. We see some of God's people perplexed. And what Solomon says, calls it vanity, he says, just, just proves trying to make sense of things with the world's wisdom is useless. It is vanity. It is smoke. It is vapor. He's charging the world, not God, with vanity and with iniquity. And he says it's a vanity that's done upon the earth. And there are many who will look at the world and look at the unrighteous. I knew of a man who just said that the way he was going to decide where to go to church, he was going to look around and see which church had the most money. And that's where he'd go to church. Well, he went to the wrong one, I can guarantee you that, because I know where he went. Here's the lesson. Things of this world do not bring true happiness to the saved. If the things of this world were designed to bring true happiness to the saved, and the rest of this is a quote from Matthew Henry, God would not have allotted so much of this world's wealth to his worst enemies and so much of its troubles to his best friends. That makes it obvious there's a life after this life. There's another life that's coming, and for a child of God, it is a better life where the joys are real and the joys are substantial. And what Solomon says in verse 15 is don't be perplexed. Enjoy what God gives you. Whatever you have, wherever you are, enjoy what God gives you. He committed joy here. He committed mirth here. And what mirth is talking about is a holy serenity of mind and a security that comes from confidence in God. You know what we call that? Peace. Confident in the power of God. Confidence in the presence of God. That he's always with us. He said, I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. Confidence in the providence of God. Confidence in the promises of God. And we can have peace regardless of where we are. Regardless of how we are having to live. Whether we have a lot or whether we have little. We have nothing better under the sun than to think soberly and to think joyfully of what God has done for us, what he's doing for us, what he will do for us, what God gives us, and to be cheerful in it. And so he just says, eat, drink, and happily trust God. We have to live right now under the sun, but we've got a life above the sun, folks. We're going to be in the presence of the Lord one of these days, and though this life is measured by minutes and hours and days, that life to come is immeasurable. And then Solomon closes this chapter. I know he didn't set up the chapter divisions and so forth, but he closes out this chapter, this portion, by talking about what I call the immensity or the immeasurability of God. I want to understand how God's working. I want to understand how God does things. I want to know this and this about God. You know what you can know about God? What he tells us in his word. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But these verses in 16 and 17 are a supplement to verse 15. And get this, when man goes beyond the sphere, his limited sphere of intelligence and wisdom and, and that sort of thing and tries to measure the whole work of God, you know what he's going to find out? Our finite intelligence cannot understand the work of God. Solomon tried to do that. Under the sun. I looked at things under the sun. I looked at things from a human standpoint and tried to understand God and couldn't do it. Some people, we talked about people not sleeping, okay? I understand that part. I didn't last night. 
But that's neither here nor there. He's talking about people not sleeping. Some people will spend day and night, they will go hours without sleep trying to answer the unanswerable and trying to solve the unsolvable. Where did our solar system come from? And they, you know, they're trying to figure all of this out. Well, I can go to Genesis 1-1 and tell you where it came from. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. That's too simple, preacher. We need a scientific experience. We tried science, folks. And psychology and sociology and those things don't tell us what God's Word tells us. Amen. And I don't know if they're still doing it or not. A few years ago when they were searching for the God particle in the universe. <laughs> well, I've got the Holy Spirit living in me so I can tell you something about God and, and maybe that you're not going to find the God particle in the universe. Verse 17 says this, nobody can comprehend God and God's plans to any degree of fullness. Amen. Just think, if you, could, if you could comprehend God, if you could get to where you fully understand God and what makes him tick and everything he does and how he works, he wouldn't be God. Amen. People want a God they can control. They want a God they can understand. Listen, folks, we can't even catch Bigfoot. Why do you think we can understand God? We cannot find the ways of God by intelligent thinks to know. And we cannot understand God by our activity. He talked about labor to seek it. There are those who want to try to figure out God so they can use God for their benefit. If I can just figure out God, I can learn how to manipulate God some. Preachers think they've done that and they think they found the formula to God's blessing. You just give me $10, I'll give you, God will give you 100 You send me 100 God will give you 1000 They think they've figured out the formula. But listen, folks, I am not a miracle worker. And neither are they, by the way. All I can know about God is what God tells us about himself in his word and what I experience of God in my life as a child of God. And here's what I know about God. He loves me. He loves you. He wants, I believe he wants the best for us. I believe God wants every man, woman, boy, and girl in this world to be saved. They're not necessarily going to be, but I think that's his heart's desire. I mean, here's what we can understand about God. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So you want to get to know God better, just learn and get to know Jesus better. Instead of trying to figure a God out, here's what we need to do. We just need to love him. We just need to serve him. We just need to trust him. And we can be assured that all of the things that happen in our life, Romans 8, 28, happen to our spiritual good and to the glory of God. Things are going to happen in life that we don't understand. And things are going to happen in life that we can't make sense of. We're going to lose loved ones. Without getting too personal, I couldn't understand why I had to lose my mother when she was 73 years old, but I did. Godly woman, faithful, loved her family, loved her husband. I don't understand it, but God has a purpose. I trust that. I believe that. We are going to see and we are going to experience unfair treatment in this world. Again, don't expect life to be fair. Pardon the grammar, but it ain't, all right? We're going to see sin and evil take place and often be glorified. And we're going to see people who commit 
wickedness and evil, we're going to see them lifted up, especially the farther this world goes into time. We're going to see people like that lifted up. And we're going to see good things happen to bad people while bad things happen to good people. We'll see all of that. And trying to understand it or to cope with it in our limited intelligence is only going to confuse us. Go back and read the 73rd Psalm. But when we recognize that God is sovereign, that God's in control, and God's working things according to His plan in our lives, in this life that we live under the sun, then here's what will happen. Life will start to make a little better sense to us. Just a little better sense. We serve a mighty and a powerful God. Amen. We serve a God who loves us. And even though things like I've mentioned are going to happen, what we understand and what we know is they're not out of the hand of God. They're not out of the control of God. He may allow some difficulty in our lives. But you ever heard no pain, no gain? We learn to trust Him through difficulty, through trials. He may allow the wicked to live a long time. And we have no right to question it. He is God. It is He who hath made us, the Scripture says, and not we ourselves. And as His children, we just need to serve Him and be faithful to Him.